Welcome to Navigating the Pandemic, Past, Present, and Future, the show that explores the novel coronavirus and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm your host, Kat, a current undergraduate at Emory University studying anthropology and global health. This episode features two voices from the clinical trial industry. Kenneth Getz, the executive director at the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, and Taquia Alford, a clinical research coordinator at Emory University. Clinical trials are experiments or observations done in clinical research. COVID-19 has led to difficulties in executing clinical trials in numerous ways. Today, we'll discuss how this essential tool in medical research has had to adapt to meet new safety standards and unprecedented pressure in drug development and dissemination. We'll open with discussion of how the industry has been impacted at large with Mr. Getz and then explore how industry changes have impacted a specific research project with Ms. Alford. Today on the show, I have the privilege of speaking with Kenneth Getz. Mr. Getz is an internationally recognized expert on research and development and clinical trial management practices and trends. His 20 plus years of original research benchmarking R&D management practices, global outsourcing, and the investigative site landscape have contributed to industry-wide understanding of these critical markets and to improvements in management strategy and execution. He is also the executive director at the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development and an associate professor at the Tufts University School of Medicine, where he conducts research programs on drug development management strategies and tactics, outsourcing, global investigative site, and patient recruitment practices and policies. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so as we move forward, I would love to open the show by asking you to discuss a little bit about what the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development is, as well as your role as the director and as a research professor. And thanks for letting us start there. It's really uh, my privilege to talk about the Tufts Center and, and what we do. We're essentially a think tank. We're in our 45th year And we were really created to essentially study macro-level drug development trends and policies and their impact on drug development speed and quality and efficiency. So we've often been asked to gather data on the drug development enterprise and then to share our findings with government agencies. We've testified before Congress Often when the FDA or uh, the European Medicines Agency makes a change, they'll ask us a year or two later to do a study where we can show what impact that change had on the cost to develop a new drug or the time that it took to recruit the target number of patients in a trial. So we sort of sit at the intersection of the science of drug development and the operations that have to support all of that great science. That is incredibly interesting. And I think that hearing about testifying in front of Congress, and it it sounds like you play a really key role in studying drug development. So it really is a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And we really feel so fortunate that we can sit as this neutral independent party that sort of keeps tabs and gathers hard data that can really help answer questions. Did a specific reform result in the intended goal of that regulation or did a certain merger or acquisition that took place accelerate or cause more inefficiencies and problems with a particular company that was developing therapies in a therapeutic area? 
Yeah, it's definitely important, I feel like, in a public service role to remember that science and data are unbiased and, you know, having organizations like this serving the public is hugely important. And so I I do want to ask, drawing on your expertise in R&D and clinical trial management, how has COVID-19 caused major disruptions to the clinical trial execution in the United States? It's sort of the most commonly asked question, and you probably noticed this as well. If the question had been first answered in April or May of 2020, it would have been a really different answer than the one we're giving now, now that we're almost a year into the lockdown period where we've now had a chance to respond to the pandemic. Initially, and no surprise really, it led to major disruption when you look at the research centers that were conducting ongoing clinical trials. So, and that's something important for everyone to to remember that when the pandemic first hit, you had all of these active clinical trials, nearly 4,000 studying investigational drugs, targeting a whole range of diseases, cancer-related illnesses, CNS and neurology, cardiology. And so you saw major disruptions. We saw at that time about 60% of all clinical trials either quickly pivoted to a remote or virtual model or they suspended the trial for a temporary period, and about 40% stayed active and open without modifying the approach or the protocol. Those were the really high-risk patient populations for which closing the trial or changing the model might have really presented too much risk for the patient. So there were certain diseases, some really severe and life-threatening illnesses in oncology and infectious disease and immunology, where it was just too risky to change the model. And patients uh, also could not self-administer any of the procedures in the trial. So they really had to continue to come into a research facility. But as I mentioned, more than half either suspended or shifted their model where patients participated through telemedicine and through the use of wearable devices and handheld devices, through the use of a desktop or a laptop computer, where they started to have home visits and uh, where some patients actually were able to uh, receive study drug, the investigational drug delivered right to their home where they could administer the investigational therapy and track it completely on their own. So that's sort of what happened in the April-May timeframe, and uh, you saw major pivots throughout the industry where you saw, just like everywhere else, professionals all moving to a work-from-home model. There were lots of concerns that these disruptions would actually cause companies to see a major decline in productivity and in uh, their revenue. And uh, so companies really adjusted their forecast and presented, I think, pretty bleak economic picture. But by the summer, we started to see more of the sites that were suspended resume their activity. We saw a growing number of COVID-related clinical trials being initiated. So that was all new business. And we actually started to see companies recognize that the shift to home-based activity was not nearly as much of a hit to their productivity. And so they started to adjust their forecasts and present a more optimistic outlook. 
And since then, we've seen a real silver lining. The drug development community has, as you know, been able to develop COVID vaccines and treatments in record time. In fact, 90% faster than is normal development time for a vaccine. And we have everybody operating remotely in more of an open environment where you have uh, external experts contributing and collaborating. So it's been a, a bit of a silver lining for the industry to have such an innovative and productive period. You just did a fantastic job of, of describing all of the modifications that organizations have had to make in response to the pandemic. And it really does seem like there were a lot of different adaptations that's happened across a lot of industries. And it sounds like not all of it was for the worse. Some of it was for the better. I like what you mentioned about silver linings. I think that's kind of a phrase that has been repeated over and over during the pandemic. We've realized that there are new ways that we can be doing things that there wouldn't have been pressure to otherwise pursue. And so in response to these disruptions that you just mentioned, I want to talk a little bit more about the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development and the qualitative study that was performed to try to understand the impact of COVID-19 on clinical trial execution. So I was wondering if you'd be able to tell me a little bit about, you know, what the goal of the research was, or if you could discuss some of the methodology. Yeah, I'm happy to. And it was so nice to be able to give you an overview of our center because it gives you a flavor for where we sit as a sort of an independent observer watching the drug development uh, enterprise, the drug development community adapt and change. All of it, as you noted, really facilitated out of necessity by a major a global you know, public health crisis. We were already starting to get questions from the media and from industry professionals and insiders asking if we were collecting data on the shift and the pivots and the adaptations that were occurring. And uh, like everyone else, it was occurring at such a rapid and fluid pace that uh, unlike our normal studies where we can do a retrospective analysis and look back at data that's already maybe a year or two old, we had to quickly pivot ourselves and gather data in real time to try to get a flavor for how the environment is changing and adapting. And so we started really with a qualitative study where we went out to the top 50 largest companies and really conducted in-depth interviews and had them collect their own data on their clinical trials and share it with us. So it was very much a collaborative, open research project, qualitative research project. In it, we were able to really get a much better flavor for what it means when a company says they're moving into more of a remote or virtual model. Not every company approached that in the same way, so it was much more nuanced. I would say, in general, the theme was that if it was a low-cost adaptation or change, and it didn't take much effort to integrate it into standard and regulated operating activity, then it was done more widely. So the use of telemedicine, being able to speak with the principal investigator in a clinical trial or the study nurse over the phone or using uh, video conferencing, that was very easy to integrate into the clinical trial. Although in every case, you had to go back to the Institutional Review Board to get their permission or approval to make that shift in the, uh, in the protocol. 
but I think the IRBs were very accustomed to those types of adaptations and, and it was a relatively easy one to implement. Uh, I would say a distant second was the use of electronic informed consent. So being able to review the protocol and get a prospective volunteer to give their consent to participate in the study, that was also more widely used. But many of the other approaches like um, the delivery of pharmaceutical supplies or the investigational drug, having a home nursing professional or a, a health professional visit the patient's home, the use of a smartphone or a mobile device to now collect data that was originally gonna be collected in the research facility. Those were adaptations that just require a much greater expense. You know, Think about the cost of, of purchasing a, a Fitbit or a wearable device for every patient in a late stage phase three trial with thousands of patients, for example, or having to deploy a new mobile device and program it for a clinical trial, those types of changes were much more expensive. And so we only saw maybe a 15 to 25% of trials pivot to incorporate some of those solutions. I see. Thank you so much for going so in depth. And I, I really appreciate too that you opened by talking about how this research was collaborative and it was open and transparent. And I would love to continue the discussion, too, by talking about how the ongoing changes produced by these adaptations to COVID-19 will continue in the future. And so I was wondering if you'd be able to talk a little bit more about the impact of COVID-19 on ongoing trials, but also your perspective on the long-term impact of what is happening right now in the adoption of new methodologies and technologies in clinical research. That's the question that everybody's asking now, and it's a really, really important one. It's a sort of a, an involved answer. From where I sit, and uh, I'm now about 35 years as an observer of this industry collecting data, I can say that most innovations, most operating innovations, changes in the way that we execute clinical trials take an incredibly long time to integrate across uh, company portfolios of activities. It's in part because it's such a heavily regulated and a risk-averse industry. There are always concerns about uh, compromising the safety of patients and confidentiality uh, and the HIPAA requirements. So there are so many factors that have really hindered rapid adoption. And then all of a sudden, along comes uh, COVID-19, and companies are forced to adapt at record speed, right? As you pointed out earlier, out of necessity, really, the pandemic facilitated a rate of adoption that we've never seen before. So with that said, you have some professionals in our industry who feel and are have such a uh, a desire to see us continue to use these new approaches that they're making uh, statements and committing to doing their best to not allow the industry to revert back to its old approach to uh, adopting innovation pre-pandemic. And that's very nice wishful thinking from, uh, again, from my perspective, given historical industry practice, I think there's certainly a lot of familiarity with these solutions, 
but I think that when we move back to sort of a, uh, a phase when the pandemic is behind us, I think you're going to see a lot of companies take it a little slower. They're going to be looking for economic indicators that a particular solution is offering a reasonable return on the investment it's providing uh, and supporting its value proposition, whether it's increasing efficiency in the trial or speed, if it causes too many delays or disruptions, too much burden for the sites to implement. I, I think many companies may revert back to their old ways. So there's going to be a period shortly after the pandemic is behind us where you're going to see companies kind of uh, look to move it a little slower and to uh, not embrace the adoption of, a, of that innovation as, as quickly as they did, where they'll look for metrics to basically inform and prove that it's the right decision for them to make across all their clinical trials. I think lo really long-term, you'll probably see some of the approaches become far more common like the use of telemedicine. Because the, the other side of this is that patients have now gotten a taste for what it's like to be in a trial that is so convenient where they can participate from home, for example, and they can just participate uh, with a smartphone wherever they might be, uh, where they have more control over the kind of data that they provide through a diary, for example, or through their health portal. So all of those things, I think, uh, will also put pressure on drug developers to try to also accommodate patient preferences. Uh, and I, I think it's, it will be a very interesting time to see where we end up when companies have been satisfied that it's the right innovation for them to continue to invest in. I'm glad you discussed how difficult rapid adaptation is, especially in such a heavily regulated and, as you said, risk-averse industry. Patients should be prioritized, but it's interesting to hear that a lot of professionals want to support this continuation and rapid adaptation and new practices, and patients kind of do too, because it sounds like you were saying there's a lot of convenience in telemedicine. If I may, I have one more question that I'd like to pose. You mentioned that you foresee a lot of companies slowing down R&D in the future, but I was wondering if you could share some insight on the present day and talk a little bit about the last mile and manufacturing and supply chain of the vaccine. Yeah, that is one of the areas where I think clinical research and health professionals and certainly the public feel uh, we have not done enough. We're at a rare point as a, an entire global community really looking under the spotlight at drug development and its connection to the delivery of healthcare. And this is so unusual because there is tremendous visibility on the development process and ultimately on that development reaching the public. At that last mile from the approval or the emergency use authorization of a vaccine and actually getting it to the point where people can receive a vaccination. And uh, for the most part, the first 10 months of this pandemic, we've kind of marveled looking inside the drug development companies to understand their how innovative they are and how productive they are and how how uh, well they've operated uh, collaboratively to accelerate the uh, development and authorization of a treatment or vaccine. 
But by the same token, now that we've received these authorizations, we're hearing about supply shortages, challenges in even getting information about when you can sign up to receive a vaccine, people who are indicating that they don't trust the speed of the development activity, and as a result, they don't want to receive a vaccination at this time. Uh, so it's really kind of a messy period now that we've shifted our focus away from what was going on internally, and now we're looking outwardly at all of the things that we have to get right in order to complete the last mile. I would say that late January was really a bit of a turning point in this last mile period where you started to see some of the states indicate that they now have plans to scale the vaccination centers and the volume of vaccines that they think they can deliver at any given time. We're seeing more public and patient education a lot of it designed to engender a higher level of trust in the drug development process. So we're starting to get that right. And I think probably by the March timeframe, you're going to see a much more rapid and more efficient process for vaccinating people who, who wish to participate in these programs. So we'll eventually get it right, but it's been a bit of a struggle. Oh, it certainly has. And I also do want to add the political transition that we've had with, in the United States with a shift in presidents has also contributed to that too. So that's another variable to think about for listeners. There definitely have been a lot of difficulties in the dissemination of the COVID-19 vaccine. But I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your insight and your time and your expertise. It has been incredibly invaluable. And I know that listeners are really going to enjoy what we discussed today. Thank you so much, Kat, for the invitation. And if uh, we can ever participate again or we ha you have some questions that we can help answer, we'd be happy to do so. Mr. Getz highlighted the importance of nonpartisan institutions in researching drug development, as well as how there have been various responses post-lockdown period and that trials were impacted differentially depending on limitations to continuing research. Lastly, Mr. Getz covered the last mile of disseminating the COVID-19 vaccine. Timely and effective dissemination will depend on staffing, location, and state protocols, among other key variables. Now, we'll transition to discussing a specific example of how clinical trials have had to adapt from the position of a clinical research coordinator, Ms. Dequia Alford. I'm excited to introduce you all to an amazing mentor I've worked closely with. Dequia Alford is a clinical research coordinator at the Emory University School of Nursing and operations manager at the Emory Urban Health Initiative. She currently manages two studies at the Woodruff School of Nursing and has a diverse background in rehabilitation, clinical research, and pharmaceutical work. She's a recent master's in public health graduate of South University in Savannah, Georgia. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Tequia. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Before we delve into these details of COVID-19 and clinical research, would you be able to give an overview of your role and responsibilities as a clinical research coordinator and maybe talk a little bit about the guidelines and protocols that you have to follow? So as far as my role now, we currently were in person for our study. Um, I'm with the study, obviously, with Emory University. This study is focused more on cancer caregivers caring for a loved one with cancer, which is an OHIC study. 
So we started with more in-person, but COVID hit and we were forced, obviously, it was the shutdown. So when everything got back up and going, I was fresh as a um, research coordinator at that time. This was, I started November, 2019. So I was literally just new to it and getting um, used to my roles. I was going to be collecting samples as far as saliva samples, um, drawing blood. So I had to get, you know, retrained on my drawing blood to be a phlebotomist. And then COVID hit and we literally had to transition our whole thing to online. The guidelines change around that time, clearly. So right now, it's kind of the same things with sample collection, but it's everything is now basically remote. You just mentioned that there was definitely a, a drastic shift in how you were maintaining your everyday roles and responsibilities. And it's obvious that this pandemic has really disrupted clinical trial research everywhere. And it seems like, for the most part, it isn't feasible to safely and effectively conduct these trials in the same manner. Like you were saying, you were trained to be a phlebotomist, but you can't be close enough to people to draw blood. To what extent has your work really changed over the past year or so? Once um, we transitioned our, rem- our study to be done from the comfort of your home for the participants, it was a struggle, but At the same time, we haven't had any issues with the transition once it transitioned over. We lost interest as far as right now. Um, it's different for me because I'm doing le- I'm doing more from the behind the scenes. You know, I'm constantly connecting with the participant. Actually, I'm connecting more now because I'm online. So I'm trying to still have that type of communication with each of them so they feel like they're part of the study. And normally it would be in person. And right now it's just by phone or virtual um, Zoom or emails and text messages for safety for us, specifically my um, study, we decided to just do um, finger sticks. So they're able to do with the Lancet finger sticks from the comfort of their home and uh, collect their own saliva sample. So a lot of things we were able to kind of not have to do as far as drawing blood. So a lot of the participants was actually (laughs) more happy. So um, it kind of worked out for our studies, but there are other studies that may still do in-person visits and of course yeah because I'm currently supposed to be on another study and we you will have to have all the PPE that's needed you know you have to have it ordered so those studies that do still have in-person they're fully equipped with you know masks and gloves and some shield if needed to fully protect them to keep studies going so a lot of different changes in the protocol, but kind of the basic safety measures that we kind of already took, but just an extra precaution during COVID for sure. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about how different changes and administrative procedures have manifested based on what you're researching, because it's convenient that for you guys, you could shift to make that online work from in person, but Yeah, I'm sure for other people, it's been harder to facilitate meaningful interactions with with research participants. And so I could see how that could be difficult. Yes, it's been working out so far, probably because I try to communicate as much as I can, you know, so they're able to contact me, call me, text me email me. And as you know, I'm very responsive to email (laughs) messages. When they're done, they're fully satisfied because even though it's 
remote, they still feel like, okay, we connected, we were able to talk, you was there when I had questions or concerns. So that has helped me specifically with my communication. I feel like administrating research like this, it's such a multifaceted machine. You have to make sure that everything is working and you you can't really miss a component. And I I really kind of want to backtrack a little bit to what you were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. with changes in safety standards. And you were talking about PPE and it is really important to be taking proper safety precautions. The structure of a lot of trials has had to adapt. And I kind of just wanted to know if you could give some insight on a little bit more about how researchers and research coordinators are maintaining reliability and ensuring standardization in their research. How have you experienced that? Or maybe how are your colleagues trying to maintain the same caliber of research and making sure that, you know, your results are valid in such a disrupted and difficult time? Yes. Um, I feel like every study has their own protocols that we had to amend to um, effectively still conduct our studies and get the results that we originally wanted. But sometimes some things we have to take away or can't do, but overall you're able to get the results that you originally wanted. Specifically for my study, we wasn't able to do the blood draws, which we normally do too, but we was able to do the finger prick. Now it's not the original way we wanted to do it, but we felt at least we were able to still collect blood samples in any way, because it could have just been, we couldn't collect it. And it's something we definitely need for our study. So I think with every study is just find the best way and the best method that you can to collect the samples that's needed. So we can effectively do what we originally was planning on doing for our study to have the results we were looking for. It's very tough, especially if you still have to go in person and you know you're you know you want to protect not only yourself but those that you're going to ha- come in contact with and it's just you know having these on your mind and but you know that the reason you're doing it is for future and it's just mm-hmm. um, it's a lot <laughs> no i can imagine it seems like there's a lot of thinking outside of the box you can't carry on research in the same way as you would pre pandemic for the most part I read a recent Lancet article on COVID-19 and readjusting clinical trials. Michael Lauer, who's the deputy director for extramural research at the U.S. National Institute of Health, said that around 80% of clinical trials right now have been stopped or interrupted. And just from your perspective as a clinical research coordinator, when would you foresee clinical trials beginning to resume with a new sense of, of normalcy, because a lot of research has been shifted, changed, adapted, um, or it's been stopped because there's been changes in funding or people are reorienting their research to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's your perspective? I feel like with clinical research and clinical trials right now, there's many out there I just feel like we're kind of uh, adapting. That's what I feel like. The, the clinical research industry, we're adapting. This is a new way of doing things, but it's, it's also something that we're learning and can use for the future. You know, a lot of the remote things that we're doing that helps participants that like we're, we're trying to um, take our own notes at the same time, because this may help later. Like, did we get more participants that 
enjoy doing things from the comfort of their home. You know, so should we try to revamp certain studies to cater to that? You know, so it, it also helps us to think outside the box and like, okay, we've been doing it this way. Maybe we should also do it this way. But as far as normalcy cat, I don't know. We have no idea. Many trials, is, clinical trials is happening or coming up that needs um, CRCs and new fundings happening and a lot of new CRC positions. And so it's kind of like, we're just trying to figure it out and we're just yeah. going with the flow. Keep pushing. <laughs> I feel like that's all you can do right now, you yeah. know, kind of one, one day yeah. at a time. But yeah. I really love what you had to say about learning as you go along and, mm -hmm. and how this has been a process because the shifts that you're seeing now could be long-term and they could be really beneficial. Yeah. And I'm, but I, I was able to adapt to being mm -hmm. in person and learning how to do remote. It's all about having a good team and just gaining extra experience if they need help here, if they need help there. I'm kind of there, I'm learning, I'm growing. I think the key highlight takeaway from this interview is be adaptable and be willing to learn. And this has been a difficult time that's put a lot of stress on people. Clearly, you've overcome a lot of the difficulties and obstacles that were thrown at you with your research from the start. And I think that is really inspirational. Kind of what it is at the forefront of everyone's mind right now is the vaccine. And so I'm sure when we are able to effectively disseminate vaccines and really get control of the virus, people will maybe see a shift back to what things were like before the pandemic. But it, it really does, from what you're saying, sound like there may not be much of a shift back to how things were because people have realized if it works online or if we can facilitate this not in person, let's just keep doing it. Yeah, I've heard mixed messages. Like some people are like, oh, I'm cool with being remote. And some's like, oh, I miss being in person. And I can understand both, you know, being able to socialize and just feel, you know, normalcy. So yeah. I get it. Some people are okay with the remote. Some are not. From your role as somebody who is in administration, do you have a preference for remote or in person? Personally, I am flexible with either. I was okay. okay when I was in the office. You know, I loved being at Emory University, being on campus. It was awesome. You know, I didn't get too much time because COVID happened, but <laughs> uh, just being able to socialize and network. But Emory has been so amazing with still keeping us engaged, you know, have a lot of Zoom, have a lot of um, staff meetings. So I feel like as long as you have the resources you need, I am literally okay with either cat. I can be in person. I could be at home, fast paced, slow paced. I can adapt. I absolutely love that. And I think that's a really great note to close out the interview <laughs> on, you know, like everybody let's all adapt. It's going to be okay. <laughs> One day at a time. That's all we can do. Thank you so much for coming on the show to quiet. It's really been a joy. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Dequai and I discussed her role as a CRC in supervising and facilitating research, the impacts of COVID-19 on her work, particularly physical distancing, interrupting regular trial procedures, new protocols and demands to keep up with, and changes in the equipment supply chain. And lastly, how researchers and research coordinators are maintaining reliability and standards under novel conditions. It was a treat to hear from two experts in the world of clinical trials and research. 
both guests discuss the ongoing and future impacts of COVID-19 on clinical trials. For more information about the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, the future of clinical trials, and the last mile for COVID-19 vaccination, access the links provided in the description. Additionally, the Woodruff School of Nursing is among the top five nursing schools in the U.S. for funding from the NIH. For more information on the Emory University Woodruff School of Nursing, a link will be provided in the description. Thank you for listening, and remember, stay safe, stay sane, and stay well. All the best, Kat.